Hello, and welcome to Pause Pop, Positively Pop Culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm Carrie Gessner. And I'm KW Taylor. Throughout the pandemic, we've been recommending ways to avoid spreading COVID-19, and we encourage you to stay healthy and careful. However, we decided to go on a hiatus recently in order to pay tribute to George Floyd and all lives lost to race-based police brutality. Even though we're all about positivity in the show, it's also sometimes true that it's really difficult to cut through upsetting things, especially when it's kind of important to let those upsetting things get media exposure, even if it's at the expense of feeling happy. That's right. So we took the week off recently, and we also tried to compile some resources for people who want to help the cause that activists are fighting for right now. BlackLivesMatter.com has some resources that you can do whether or not you decide to join an in-person protest. They have petitions you can sign, you can make a donation, and you can use your social media to fight disinformation. You can also find other resources at ACLU.org, ResistBot, SPLCenter.org, and MinnesotaFreedomFund.org. And I'd also like to give a plug to the book Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America, by journalist Linda Tirado. Tirado was covering the Minneapolis protests when a rubber bullet was shot into her face, and she has become blind in one eye. Tirado's work includes extensive photography, and so her livelihood's been jeopardized by this police action. I really encourage people to buy her book as an act of support. Her work has been really important to me. I read this book in a class on American inequality a couple of years ago, and then I later used it in some research that I, that I wrote. So when I heard about what happened to her, it really kind of touched me since I, I felt like this little connection to her. I also think that if you care about intersectional oppression, consider the book Black Feminist Thought by Patricia Hill Collins. And that is also a hugely foundational book for my teaching and research. Good. I'm putting those on my list right now. And I will do a little plug for How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. I started reading this last night, and I'm not that far into it. But I think reading is a good way to help educate ourselves. And if you're in the Pittsburgh area and you belong to the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh, I think they have made this book, the ebook and the audiobook, available for everyone. There's no wait list anymore. So many people can download it all at the same time. So that was great. And to very clumsily shift gears, we are still a pop culture podcast, and we're going to stay that way for better or for worse, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that our discussions can can help bring a bit of levity. So today we're going to talk about the new Amazon film, The Vast of Night, the anthology Reign of Queens, which I have a story in. And we're also going to bring back one of our favorite guests, Robin, who guides us through a deep dive into the classic sci-fi TV series, The Prisoner. Awesome. And this episode is actually falling right around both of our birthdays. So happy birthday. Happy birthday to us. <laughs> and so Carrie, do you have a plan to consume any particularly special pop culture things on your birthday? Hmm. Well, very excitingly, my mom and dad got me a week in a yurt at one of the local state parks. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I know. So I'm really excited for that. I haven't decided exactly what I'm going to read yet, but I am going to bring probably way too many books for one week. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm very excited to, to get into it. But what about That's you? Awesome. Do you have a plan? My, I sort of decided that either on my birthday or sometime around it, I'm going to try to finally get around to watching the new Netflix interactive movie Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Kimmy versus the Reverend. 
which I love Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and I was so sad when it ended. And I didn't know anything about this movie even being made and then saw a preview for it and was like, what? That's random that they not only dropped this movie like really like secretly almost, but also that it's an interactive movie. Yeah, I'm really intrigued by the fact that it's interactive. Yeah. I'm looking forward to what to what your thoughts are. And I hope you like it on your birthday. Have you already seen it? No. No? Okay. I watched the first season. I got a, I just, I don't know, took a break or something and never got back into season two. So I, f- I feel like I should go back and watch it because I need something sort of funny and, and light. It is very funny and light, and it's, it's probably perfect for these times, in fact. Did you watch the Netflix interactive movie uh, that was based on Black Mirror? I can't remember the actual title of that film. I think it was Bandersnatch. Bandersnatch. Maybe? Yeah. Did you watch that? No, I haven't. Okay. That was pretty fun. We, my husband and I watched that and we, we went through several different little permutations of it. I don't know that we saw every single possible outcome, but some of them were like really short and some of them took forever. So I got I to gotta watch Kimmy when, it's, when I got a good chunk of time that I can like circle back and play all the different outcomes. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. Well, speaking of movies, you recently watched one that you really, really liked. So tell me all about it. I'm, I'm very curious. Yeah, this was the strangest film I've seen in a long time. So this is called The Vast of Night, and it's available streaming on Amazon Prime right now. I almost went to see this at a drive-in. Ooh. It is playing in drive-ins. Now, I love drive-ins. Yeah. And actually, having drive-ins open right now is brilliant. So I really thought about seeing it at the drive-in. I think it was a case of we had bad weather on the weekend that we were thinking about going. So I'm actually sort of glad I didn't see it in the drive-in, but I'll, I'll talk about ways that it could work at the drive-in. But let me just kind of talk about the film itself. So it's called The Vast of Night. It's directed by Andrew Patterson. The cast is not very famous. Sierra McCormick is the main actress, and she plays Faye Crocker. And then Jake Horowitz plays Everett. And they are really the main characters. This takes place in like a nebulous 1950s in Cayuga, New Mexico. And the two leads, they're, they're supposed to be very young. Faye is still in high school. I think she says she's 16 at one point. And Everett is, he's a radio DJ, but he's also very young. I would, I would venture, my little theory about it was that they had gone to high school together and either he dropped out or he graduated, but is just barely older than her and is working his first job at this little, this little radio station in his hometown. So basically, um, Faye is a high school student, but she also has this other job as a telephone switchboard operator. And after she, she's in the school band and she's playing some stuff at the big game, there's a big basketball game that everybody in the town has gone to. But Faye is clearly on duty at the uh, phone company um, switchboard operation. So she does not at the whole game and she goes to her job and she hears like a call comes in and she hears this really, really weird noise on it. It's like not very distinct. It's not some like on the surface upsetting noise, but she's unsettled by it. And she kind of tries to figure it out on her own a little bit. But then eventually she um, hears the noise on Everett's radio broadcast because she's got the radio on in the background. And um, so she calls him at the radio station and the rest of the movie is them trying to figure out what this noise was. And that sounds really Mm -hmm. simple, but they end up having long conversations with a couple of different people and in their investigation, they, they run around the town, which is very deserted because everyone in town is at the basketball game. 
And yeah, and it, it has a very strange sort of end and a lot of strange little elements in it. A couple of things make this more than your standard, like, UFO type movie. Okay. First of all, everything takes place in real time. So there's this great sense of urgency. Also, they they frame the movie as being an episode of a TV show called Paradox Theater, which is supposed to be like Twilight Zone, but that is not a real show. So there's this sense of unreality already built into it. Like, we see this story filmed pretty realistically, and it's in color and everything, but it has this moment at the beginning where it fades from a black and white TV set and then turns into color, and we see the events unfold. And the pacing of it is not like a Twilight Zone episode would be. So so that's kind of strange. And then the other thing is that there's all these really, really long shots. And in fact, the whole first, I want to say, 10 minutes of the film is one big shot of Everett sweeping through the school gym, talking to people, doing stuff, talking to Faye, and he and Faye go outside, and they're interviewing people in their cars with her tape recorder. And and then they go their separate ways. But this establishment of their friendship and, and both of their behavior and personality, it's rapid fire dialogue. It's really interesting. It's kind of setting the stage of like, oh, everybody knows each other in this town. And it's really cute and whatever. And they're kind of funny together. But it goes on really long and nothing really spooky happens for quite some time. But everything hmm. takes place at night. And so even with all that, the way it's the way it's lit, the way the shot goes on so long, there is something kind of weirdly disconcerting about it. Huh. And there's moments too where people like there's there's a scene where Everett interviews someone on the radio and you don't see the other caller. And it just is kind of like a still shot of of Everett. And then at certain points in the conversation, the screen goes dark as you listen to the caller speaking. And I thought that was a really interesting technique, too. So the thing about this movie is that it requires patience, listening, and extreme attention to detail. Hmm. It's a very, very quiet movie. So watching it at home late at night was kind of perfect, in my opinion. But I do wonder, what would that have done to the drive-in experience, where everything's big? You kind of, I don't know, my, my ideal kind of movie to watch at a drive-in is something kind of big and colorful and bright and loud and whatever. And this is the opposite of all of that. So. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's, I very much recommend it. I have read some reviews. It's it's generally very well reviewed in in critical press and it was very highly acclaimed at Sundance or Slamdance, sorry, where it won the audience award for best narrative feature last year. But I have been reading like Reddit threads about it. And so it has some mixed reviews from everyday viewers who find it a little bit slow. I honestly think that all of that really worked for it. Okay. I'm very intrigued, but also a little bit concerned about it being in real time, because I could see how that would would make it slow. It makes it slow in places, but it makes it very, very quick in other places. It's like real life in that regard. There's moments of immediacy when Faye and Everett are like literally running across town to try to figure this out. And and then there are moments where you see her at her switchboard for quite some time. So when normal things are happening. So yeah, and everyone in this movie has amazing glasses. I just want to put that. <laughs> Faye wears these cat's eye horn rimmed glasses that are a whole look. 
<laughs> they are wild. And Everett has like big That's amazing. Buddy Holly style glasses. So it's very stylized. I just love that that's what you locked in on. Well, because you you have so few characters, there's there's really only five characters even credited in the whole movie. Okay. And I just at one point noticed everyone is wearing these very specific glasses. There's like one character you see who is not wearing glasses. And then there's also like a baby and obviously she doesn't have glasses, but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, and there's a lot of background people and stuff, but it's just the funny the funny thing that the especially the main two leads who really carry the whole film both have these very specific glasses. And I think it's possibly like you could interpret it as why is it that these two are glasses wearers? Because not everyone wears glasses. But I kind of got to the point where you almost were supposed to notice them because there's a hidden thing happening. And these are the only two people in town who actually can see it. Oh, so yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. I also almost think there, I don't have any proof of this, but I have a theory that this film is supposed to be a little bit Lovecraftian, but I think that is open to interpretation. Okay, cool. Well, I'll definitely put it on my list and I'll let you know what I think, but I'm, I'm certainly intrigued. Cool. At least start it. Try it out. See what you think. I will. So to kind of shift gears from sci-fi film, you are in a new anthology. I am. Yeah. It came out in Kindle at the end of May, but they pushed it out in paperback a little bit earlier than that because of COVID-19 and Amazon was deprioritizing book shipments and stuff. Yeah. So the anthology is called Reign of Queens and it's put out by Dragon Soul Press and the conceit of the anthology is that from the title, I think it's clear it's all about fantasy stories about queens. Cool. (laughs) So my story is called The Tower of Ithadir, and it's about, I don't want to like give too much away because it is just a short story, (laughs) but it's about a queen who was kind of forced into a not great marriage, and there's some tension there between her matriarchal country and his patriarchal country. But the main character is not the queen. The main character is the captain of her guard, who is half human, half ogre. And her name is Tama. And I really like writing characters who don't really fit. So the inspiration for this was I kind of wanted to write a darker story than I normally do. And even so, it's, it's still not amazingly dark. It's not like... Game of Thrones level of grittiness, but there's definitely more violence than than normal in my stories. Yeah, it's it's about like the tension between personal duty and I guess professional duty, maybe, or just what's expected of you. So yeah, I, it was a lot of fun to write. I'm excited for people to read it. Cool. That sounds really good. Thank you. I'm gonna end up grabbing that on Kindle. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. I hope you like it. Thank you. That sounds good. And we're just we're just doing all these speculative fiction topics today. I think that was our unifying theme. We recently talked to our friend Robin, who is a pop culture scholar and writer and expert on the cult TV series, The Prisoner. So enjoy. So we're here with Robin, pop culture guru and aficionado and scholar. That's true. 
I literally have a degree in popular culture. She does, yes. And she's been watching The Prisoner. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what, what made you start watching that recently? Well, the algorithm on Amazon Prime recommended it to me, and I had heard of it. I'd already heard of it, and, you know, I was like, let me just turn it on, and I can turn it off. And the fact that it was only one season, honestly, was kind of attractive. I thought the pilot was really good as far as pilots go, and I just kept going, and I just actually just finished it last night. So I've been watching it over a couple weeks. I didn't really binge it. It was sort of an occasional thing. I watched the pilot. I've seen this series before, though. But it's been probably 10 years. And I, I remember I, I think I either rented it on Netflix disc back in the day or watched it on, it used to be on AMC or A&E or something on cable a long time ago. So, but I have seen it. Okay, yeah. And this was my first time. I watched the pilot last night. But you were saying, Robin, that you feel like this pilot, if we focus on the pilot for a little bit, that you feel like it was a perfect pilot episode. Why is that? For me, a good pilot will obviously introduce the premise in sort of like almost like a full story and then kind of leave it open for more. So I thought that it was just well paced and it kind of gave you what you needed to know to like set you forward because I've been watching some shows where like I don't really know what's going on in the first episode, you know, and, and there are shows now that people say, well, you don't really know what's going on to like episode five. Yeah. And I'm like, what is the point? Like, why <laughs> would you do that? So I just thought it was very much like it gave you enough and I mean, I don't know you want, if you want to go into the content of it. Yeah, let's kind of set up the, the premise as presented in the pilot. Okay. So Patrick McGowan, star, writer, creator. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was big Impresario. <laughs> I was like, why is this so dramatic? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. First of all, did, how did you feel about him? He's interesting. I've seen him in other stuff bef- besides this. He, he was a veteran character actor in his later career. Yeah, so he plays like a James Bond type character, yes. and he's racing down his road in his little speedster, <laughs> and he very dramatically walks into his boss's office and resigns, throws an envelope down. You don't know why he resigns, and then he goes back to his house, and he somebody comes up to the house and like gasses the house with like some very good like dry ice effects <laughs> and he wakes up in a what he thinks is his apartment but then he goes to the window and he looks out and he's in this town which i thought was gorgeous mm-hmm. it's actually a a tourist town called port myron port marion it's welsh so it could have a completely and it was built like to be a tourist town with these sort of quaint buildings. Um, so he decided to film there. And I've been looking at it like I've been on Google Maps and I, I really want to visit. I want to live there. I mean, if I woke up, I was like, great, I live here now. It's so cute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I had a little bit of trouble with him wanting to escape so badly. Yeah, I was like, hey, you know what, if someone threw me in this town and like, Gave me money and stuff to do. I'm cool. Yeah. Yeah, like the economy. He didn't really have a job. He was fed every day, you know. His uniform, like that blazer I was digging. If he had just gone with it, it would have been fine. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, that's the thing. I mean, the whole show is like as if an undergrad fraternity bro took a philosophy class and wanted to apply all the concepts. And I say that still loving the show. Like it's kind of the idea that he's a rugged individual and like nobody can take his freedom and even though it is an idyllic place like you're not you're trapped there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so 
you know, as the series goes on, it kind of like each episode, like kind of almost like explores some sort of like philosophical conundrum of man, sometimes in a really obvious way, sometimes not. So, well, and I think it was also interesting that it's a little bit of a product of its time. This was on in 1967. And, you know, the Cold War was was raging. And James Bond was really big at this time. So the idea that they would have kidnapped a secret agent, and he doesn't know part of the problem, I think, is that yeah, it's nice. And he knows he's been kidnapped because he resigned so abruptly and he has secrets. And yeah. if he's a British agent, which we presume, he doesn't know if it's the UK, the Americans or the Russians or they don't, he doesn't know who has him. So part of the issue is, you know, if they're going to get my secrets or we don't know as an audience why he resigned, maybe he's a traitor. Yeah. If he was a double agent, he's it's just very unclear who's controlling this place. And that's part of the issue. And the audience is lulled into feeling like, oh, yeah, this is so pretty. Why wouldn't you? But it's like, yeah, but so. And I think that that's really, it's very late, mid to late 60s concern, especially in like a a UK production. Like the illusion of peace. Yeah, it's like, it's like capitalism. It's comfortable until it starts to do you wrong. And then you realize that there's a danger in protection from people who are in power who don't want you to have any freedom. So. And we, the audience doesn't, like the audience is not in on it either. And we don't even know much about him. Like, I don't think he has a real name. No. The whole series. So he's labeled number six and his house, he's given a home that is that has a really cute little, you know, sign outside this number six. And he's brought to see number two, who is the de facto leader. So then number two tries to get him to give his secrets. And there's this really cool surveillance room. There's a security system on this in this place called the Rover, Rover, (laughs) which is just this giant ball. And it's so (laughs) creepy. When I first saw it, I audibly laughed. Yeah, but it is very creepy. I don't know if it's sentient or if it's controlled. I always I thought that the people were controlling it, but maybe it's sort of like AI or something. But the thing that I found most creepy about it is that when it like attacks somebody who's trying to escape or whatever, that it like they're in it and you see them like pressing their face up against yeah, it. Yeah, that's not. Yeah, that's creepy. That's not cool. <laughs> and it either kills you or you end up in the hospital. And it's sort of fast, but not really. Like it still follows you. And I thought at first maybe it was only in his mind. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think so. Because it attacked that other guy who ended up in the hospital. Yeah. So many really iconic images in this, too, that I think get played with in other other things, like the Penny Farthing logo. There's this image of a bicycle that's the old-timey yes. Victorian bicycle with the giant front wheel and the little back wheel. And I did read, I did do some research that McGowan wanted that image to convey the fact that progress had stopped. So this was like supposed to be retro in a way that was, I don't know, it's like fake idyllic. Yeah, because the town, the other people in the town, they they wore these, the clothes they wore were very bright. It was sort of like sailor striped shirts, colorful capes. In case you couldn't tell, I was really obsessed with the like production design and It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. There's sort of an aesthetic that. 60s and 70s sci-fi has that is that very colorful where sometimes now like every sci-fi movie is like dark like there's this like dark gritty dystopia but I just I really love that colorful 
the way they they're playing with color. Yeah, it's very reminiscent of some eras of Doctor Who, uh-huh. which even filmed on that on that place in Wales before. It's very reminiscent of a kind of optimistic style of sci-fi, even though this is actually not very optimistic. And I think in the 70s, mid 70s and late 70s, we get more of that gritty, you know, alien vibe where it's a lot more like quasi realistic and dirty and stuff. But this is very bright and shiny and clean. And but that's again, that's a Cold War thing. It's to hide the fact that stuff is really bad and we have to look nice on the surface. The other thing is that like there's double agents within the town. So there's people he's not sure he can trust. There's people who are out to get him, like to deliberately gain his trust. Going forward in the episodes, there's sort of like a resident scientist that has different inventions or like new science fiction ways to extract information from him that they'll do. One, I was like, Inception stole this because they were able to like go into his dreams and put it on a screen and sort of manipulate the dream. Oh, wow. By going in and trying to get him to admit something like a person they put into his dream to sort of admit something to them that they can find out, then he will always find out what the game is and then like beat them at their own game. So he went in and pretended to be asleep, but like manipulated a dream. I mean, it's, it was one of the very cooler episodes. Another episode, this kind of freaked me out. He met this woman who said, look, there's a guy on the island across the way who has an escape route. He, you know, he's connected. We can put you in a shipping container and pretend your cargo. So they get there, he gets out and he's supposedly in like another in London and they come out and they're like, "Oh, so glad we saved you. So glad you're back in London." And he suddenly realizes that the sound of the cars outside keep repeating. Oh, yeah. And the person has a sound of London streets and he's actually back in the island. Oh, jeez. Oh, and I was like, after all that, and it just ends where he opens the door and he sees like the, the main lake again. And he's like, well, <laughs> still back here. There's another episode of that where he actually does get out and they want to find out where the island is and they fly him to the island and then they eject him from the seat and he lands back in the island. Like there's a lot of like near escapes. Yeah. And him being like, oh, nuts. <laughs> back here. Yeah. I mean, that's how you create the suspense, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of shows that are that I feel are very, very inspired by this. And I want to get into those. But I, I first I want to hear, since this was Carrie's first time seeing this, I want to hear what your thoughts are overall of the pilot. (laughs) Okay. It's very 60s. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which I don't have a lot of experience with. Yeah, so it took me a little while to get into it because I liked Patrick McGowan. But he was a little bit over the top. <laughs> he had some good faces. Yeah. So it kind of took me a bit to to readjust to, okay, this is from the 60s. It's going to be yeah. different. One of the things that I enjoyed was we talked about the intro sequence before, but we didn't mention that there's no dialogue. Yeah. In intro sequence, which is, I thought was a really interesting choice. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And also kind of leans into the idea that, like, we don't actually know why he resigns either. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I'm interested enough to keep going, (laughs) but I I am interested in how the story actually ends. We'll maybe get into the finale a little bit, but the, the shows that I clearly have always felt like this inspired... There's a show in the mid-90s called Nowhere Man, 
with Bruce Greenwood. It was on UPN. And I, my husband had liked it a lot and bought the DVD set and we watched it and I was enthralled. It was amazing. And it was more like that guy was not trapped within a village, but his life externally had been taken from him. Like Mm -hmm. his wife didn't know who he was. His job didn't know who he was. All his credit cards didn't work. And so he was allowed to be free and exist in the world. He just had had his identity completely stripped away. Hmm. So that was like a reverse variant of that. And then Carrie, I think you and I watched that show, Wayward Pines. Yes. Yeah. I I just thought about that. That's recent, right? That's very recent. That's just from maybe five years ago. And that's based on a series of novels. And it's a similar thing where a guy wakes up. He's been in a car accident and he wakes up in this weird little town. And the explanation for that is wild. You may <laughs> yeah. do a segment on just that if I want to rewatch part of it. And everybody acts like, oh, it's so great here. And he's like, but I can't get out. And it's weird. And there's really hinky stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. That's not like spy sci-fi related. And then I think there was a lot that reminded me not only of Lost. I think that's an obvious correlation, but The Good Place Yes. Because you have this little idyllic village and it's very cutesy and stuff, but it's not what it seems. So yeah, so many other. And number six in the remake of Battlestar Galactica, the Cylon character who just goes by number six, she's in homage to number six on The Prisoner. So yeah, maybe we should put a big spoiler stamp on this and have Robin go ahead and tell us about the wild, wild finale. (laughs) So the original number two comes back because I think we mentioned this, that the number two keeps rotating and somebody becomes the new number two. So he comes back and they somehow, so they've tried every option. So that number two takes number six down to this basement and locks him in there and they're together in there for a week straight with all these like weird props. There's like an organ, a rocking horse, a chalkboard. And it's, he does regression therapy on him. Like he, he hypnotizes number six into thinking he's a child. And then number two tries to be the father. For, like it is, it just, it's a lot of close up of faces and crying and, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and like screaming. Oh, and they said one of you is going to die. Oh. Only one of you will come out alive. So number six comes out alive because he still refuses to give up. So then he's let out. They're like, congratulations, you won. You can meet number one. So then they take him down to this like deep in the earth cave that has a lot of steampunk elements that they don't quite explain. There is a jury of masked men. Now, this is kind of like two on the nose. They have labels like one is like nihilism. One is individualism. <laughs> and he's on trial and he watches the trial of these two other prisoners And then finally, they say, okay, you are the new number one. Like, you are number one. And what you can either do is stay here and lead us or leave. And he, for some reason, is like, well, I don't believe you. I think there's number one because there's a rocket ship in this cave that is about to go off. So he goes into the rocket ship. I don't even know if I'm explaining this right. (laughs) Because apparently the, the, the number one that he's replacing is in there and he wants to know the identity. So he goes up and there's a guy up there watching footage of him throughout the series. And he makes the guy turn around. The guy's wearing a mask, takes off the mask. He's wearing another mask, (laughs) takes off that mask. And it's him. He's looking at himself as number one. And then he somehow does something and the rocket goes off and that causes chaos. And then the town is evacuated. 
like all the residents are like in panic evacuating. Okay, so do you remember the butler, the the butler that doesn't talk? The butler escapes on a truck that has a simulation of a living room on the back. For some reason, drives them to London, drops off the other two. One goes to like Buckingham Palace and like they're free. Meanwhile, there's no dialogue. It's just weird music. So finally, finally, he gets back to his flat and his car, his little roadster is there. And then he goes out, he goes out on a trip on the roadster. And meanwhile, the butler goes to the front door and the front door opens automatically, just like it did in the village. So therefore, people are saying that it's sort of like a purgatory where it starts again, where he's still a prisoner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, and I also read something that people would like attack him on the street because they were so angry about how it ended. Yes. I was a little angry and I like ambiguity, but I was like, this just went so off the deep end mm-hmm. that you're trolling us almost. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and you know, it's about like the philosophy of like, maybe this was all in his head the whole time, or it's an allegory or purgatory. And so it's not really resolved. You think he's home, but. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not even doing it justice. Like, there's a weird song that plays through all of this, and this one guy can't stop laughing. So, yeah, I I remember being kind of disappointed by some elements of that. But I also, I I did read up on what McGowan was kind of trying to get at, but yeah, you're imprisoning your own self that ultimately, even if you're thinking you're free from certain things, that you are creating prisons yourself. So it was important to him that number one be... Number six. Then there is this undercurrent throughout the whole series of individualism, which can be read as almost kind of a libertarian philosophy thing, or it can be freeing yourself from being in the underclass and being exploited by your government and stuff. So it's really, a lot of it's very open to interpretation. It's very much of a cipher of a show. And I think people can put their own kind of philosophical bent on it because it's very open. And I think too that they never reveal number six's real name. That's very on purpose. He is the Enigma character. He has a personality, of course, but it's still kind of thin, really, you know. I'm surprised for that early in TV that that's what he sold them as the ending. And they were like, okay. I feel like a little bit like there was a little bit of a contract with the audience that we could have gotten like a little more, at least the last episode to be in the same tone. Yeah. To not in the last episode be this like farcical drug trip that it became. <laughs> yeah. You know what it reminded me of at the end? I just thought it reminded me of Willy Wonka. Like it went oh, full yeah. Willy Wonka at the yes, end. Yes, absolutely. Does this ending make you want to finish it, Carrie, or not? <laughs> no. <laughs> it does not. <laughs> it, was, it was a surprise even to me. Yeah. I kind of do want to know why he resigned. And that's what they're after, right? But they never get that. Is that correct? Correct. You don't know. They don't know. And that's what I said. Like, I th- I'm okay with it. But like, I feel like they needed to at least throw in a little more, tease that a little more, because that was, you know, that was what was sort of what it was built around. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's hard to end a show like that. You know, it's hard. It was hard to end Lost. It was hard to end Battlestar Galactica. It's hard to end a show where there's all these deep philosophical questions hanging out there. And nobody's going to be delighted with it. So I, I feel like McGowan was probably like, you know what? Here's my central conceit and I'll have that in there. But then we're going to just make it weird. I kind of <laughs> like that. Like he was trolling people, but like I appreciated it. Like yeah. he was like, you think you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I thought it was really good. I love science fiction that's not too 
science-y, you know? Yeah, I would call this social science fiction for sure. This is much more philosophy, sociology, psychology. And that's something that I tend to prefer myself too. So yeah, it's, it's a study in interesting design. It's a study in how to do cinematic style design on a television scale, which is just beautiful. Because most 60s mm-hmm. series, from the UK at least, are not quite this lush and pretty with their cinematography and, and film quality and stuff. And so it's, it's much more filmic, I think, than TV. Yeah, yeah, kind of almost fits the model of like how prestige TV is now, where it's just like a really long, big budget movie. Yeah, exactly. So Carrie is probably not going to watch more of this. Are you going to check out the... <laughs> so we had we had warned her not to watch the remake, but are you going to do it anyway, at least the first episode? I would like to. It's actually really hard to find. Oh, is it? Yeah, the only place it's streaming is like AMC Premiere or something, which I don't have. But it doesn't look like it's available at all on Interesting. Amazon, except by DVD. Like you can't Now it makes it. me want to watch it. Yeah, so I'm really intrigued. I might have to like, I don't know, see if it's on Hoopla or something weird. Yeah, see if it's on Hoopla. The thing I will tell you, probably one of the reasons it didn't do it better. Um, Jim Caviezel is in it as number six, and he's actually really good. And I think he was nominated for an Emmy for it. He's much more toned down than McGowan, who is very, as we kind of hinted at, a little over the top. But I think his his reactions are somewhat justified. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is filmed in Wales, and it's got this very, very specific uh, visual style, which is completely different from the remake because it was filmed in South Africa. It's got a desert feel. The design mm-hmm. of the houses is completely different. It looks much more sparse, and it looks like not necessarily a place that you would want to be tempted to stay. So the audience is immediately uh-huh. still with number six of going, yeah, get out of there. This looks pretty crummy. Whereas if you're if you wake up in a seaside community in in Wales with all this cute little twee houses and stuff, you might be like, yeah, why are you complaining? <laughs> but the the one in in the 2000s, it's like, oh, yeah, you want to you want to get out of there right quick, buddy. Yeah. That's that says of the times, right? When you think about like kind of like war, like modern warfare and torture and like 9-11. Yeah. To bring it to that. Yeah. It just seems like that is the more that's kind of what the dystopia looks like now. Yeah. The threat of warfare in the 60s would have, again, been Cold War. You're fighting a lot of European nations fighting each other. Um, it would be very, very easy for Soviet agents to commandeer a place in the UK. And again, yeah, in desert, desert storm, post-desert storm times, post 9-11, you're going to be seeing desert warfare. So yeah, absolutely. But do we think this is ultimately hopeful or is it just deeply philosophical and ultimately depressing? Or <laughs> is there some thread of hope that we can take from this? I mean, based on what you told me about the ending, yeah, it sounds kind of depressing. I would say so too, like not in the actual watching of it, but in the, if you actually really think about it and think about the messages about, you know, we're all prisoners to ourselves or we make our own misery or, I mean, if it isn't obvious, like it's just all white people and the women are sort of objects and pretty distractions that are sent to like seduce him. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's problems with that, but I felt I felt like middle ground, like I felt not too depressed, but I didn't feel I think the looking back on it and the fact that it has become camp in its 
displacement of time period, I think helps it feel a little more upbeat. Yeah. It's it's still so pretty. It's hard to let it get you too down, I think. So yeah. Well, very cool. This was really interesting. I may go back and, and rewatch a little bit more of it. But yeah, I do. I do remember finding myself awed and frustrated by the finale. <laughs> well, thank you again, as usual, for being here. And can you remind our listeners where to find you on social media? Oh, yes. It's on Instagram and Twitter at Robin HHHHH, five H's. Okay. All right. Well, it was lovely that I got to talk to you two days in a row. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was very cool. And Kathleen, let me, like, I'm curious your thoughts along the way if you do rewatch it. Okay, will do. Thank you so much to Robin. She's always interested in the most interesting things. So I don't think I would have watched even the pilot without her. I didn't know this was a TV show that existed. So thank you very much. It was a very, very fun conversation. Yes. The next time we are talking to urban fantasy author J.L. Gribble. So look forward to that. And we also have some more great interviews and segments coming up in the next few weeks. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can find me on Twitter at KWTaylorWriter. And me on Twitter at Carrie Gessner. And both of us on Twitter at Pause Pop Podcast. If Twitter's not your thing and you want to email us, you can do that at PositivelyPopCulture at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. Pause Pop.